Good morning, everybody. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and 6 this morning. At the end of the morning, we'll be halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes from the Old Testament. Um, I, I don't, every once in a while, someone will come up and ask me, like, how do I know I'm saved? Like, how do I know I belong to Jesus, I've received salvation, those sorts of things? And they don't ask very often, but there has been a test that Jesus gave us this week that I think is helpful in regards to knowing whether or not you are saved. And so it makes it just really easy for you. And so um, the question really is, uh, are you a Yanni or a Laurel? So take a listen to this and tell me what you hear, either Yanni or Laurel. Laurel, 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 Laurel. All right, Glenn. Haven't even heard Yanni. Just a, just a couple? Just a couple. Don't, don't be, no, that's all right. I, that's all I hear is Yanny too. How many of you hear Laurel? Well, here's what I want you to know, you Laurel people. Jesus says, narrow is the way, and therefore, just kidding. Um, I got another one. My son sent this to me. Uh, it's the same sound. So I want, you to, uh, I want you to either, I want you to think of either one of two things. Either have in your mind green needle or brainstorm. Green needle or brainstorm. Just pick one of those two, green needle or brainstorm. You got it in your mind? Doesn't matter which one, just think of it in your head. Now listen to this. Which one do you hear? Okay, did you hear what was in your mind? Now switch it. Now think of the other. If you thought of green needle, I want you to now think, put brainstorm in your head. If you heard brainstorm uh, first, put green needle in your head. So think of the opposite. Ready? Exact same sound. Listen to this. Here's what this proves. You hear what you want to hear. And with that, I'll begin my sermon this morning. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes when you're reading through Ecclesiastes, it is confessionally very negative. It is very dour. We've been talking about Grumpy Cat. And now we have video footage of the author of Ecclesiastes as a baby. So I want you to see the author of Ecclesiastes as a baby. Cara, minha mãe. Tá com raiva de quem? Pois é, então, você tá falando merda. Ah, mas é cara, minha mãe. Vixe. Mamãe, vinha arrumar essa cara, mamãe. <risos> sorri, sorri. Mas a cara, mamãe. Vai, sorriso. There we go. 
<laughs> have, you, have you ever been in such a bad mood, you hated everyone and everything? Like, just you hated, like, like you truly could not be consoled. You had such a bad attitude that you had a sarcastic or negative response to everything and everyone that tried to offer you to cheer you up. I mean, I've had moments where I've been in such a bad mood. I, thought, I think I have a demon. Like, I need somebody to cast this out of me right now. That things that I would normally find funny are not amusing to me at all. Things I would find, normally find enjoyment in, I wasn't interested in. And beware that one, per, you know that one person in your life is always trying to cheer you up in that moment, like always got something positive to say, and oh, let me say something sweet, and like, you know, it's sunny and it's warm outside, and you're in the mood where your response is, are you kidding me? This is a breeding ground for mosquitoes out there, and the humidity is ridiculous. I'm sweating all over the place. There used to be a tree here for shade, but it got a disease and died, had to be taken down, and... It's supposed to be even worse tomorrow. Kids are hanging all over me, and I don't even want to be touched. I'm probably dying of malaria or a heat stroke right now. It's that grumpy cat existence. And I'm convinced this is the koheleth, which is the Hebrew word that is translated as teacher in your Bible in the book of Ecclesiastes. That he is staring down death and having lived his whole life observing the nature and meaning of life, like what really lasts, and he has decided that all of it is hevel which is the Hebrew word that we've been talking about, meaning, and translated in your Bible as meaningless. It's sort of like a chasing after the wind. It literally means smoke or vapor. Right when you think you can grasp it, it gets away from you. Such is life. The moment you think you found purpose and meaning, some tragedy hits. And there's nowhere to turn even to find this meaning. Not in wisdom, not in pleasure, not in work. All of it is, as he will say over and over again, hevel. Now, there are a few better than statements that you'll find in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, like, I mean, everything's hevel, but being wise is better than being a fool. And I guess being alive might be better than being dead. But just at every term, there's only the negative, like someone who is truly in a bad mood or an eternal pessimist who can't find the good in anything and can see the bad in everything. For the teacher, and this has really been pronounced, like I've read Ecclesiastes over and over again, but for some reason preparing for this sermon series, I have truly noticed what I've not noticed, and that is before, is that, that you know who uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes holds responsible for this? God. And if you read it, it doesn't come across as an overly angry assessment of God. Like, you don't see the writer crying out, how could you do this to me, God? It's just more of a careful observation in regards to life. He, he, he decides God is the one who's responsible for this. The seasons or the lot of portion that's assigned to each one of us or whether or not a person prospers and acquires wealth or and it's God who determines the length of someone's life. This is, this is all God's doing. And I raise this again because I think more people find themselves in this place than we probably would want to admit. And because we don't admit it, when people do find themselves there, it is a real crisis. Like, you know this, right? That there's somebody sitting right next to you, and they are in the midst of pain or suffering or depression or grief or loss or tragedy or just boredom or regret and disappointment and sometimes profoundly so and in these moments it's hard enough to come to church let alone to sing songs about how wonderful God is and how beautiful everything is and let's praise Jesus for that and hallelujah for that it's like you get moments Sometimes a depression where we're like a baby refusing to be consoled, like a guy in a terrible mood, he's in a place of grumpy cat, far more than he is open to an encouraging word. <laughs> and if you've ever been there, and I think most of us have, like you know what I'm talking about, and you will thus completely understand the writer of Ecclesiastes. 
Everything is hevel, absurd, meaningless, and a vapor. So with that, let me uh, kind of launch into Ecclesiastes 5 by introducing it with a story from the Old Testament that in my mind is just terrible. And there are several stories in the Old Testament that I, when I get done reading, I just go, oh, wow, like that's terrible. Let me share one with you. It's out of the book of Judges, chapter 11. Uh, it goes like this, in verse 1. It says, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. I can kind of keep that on the down low. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah, right, the other brother, away, saying things like this. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So picture his posse. Who, who goes around Jephthah? The scoundrels. <laughs> like, it's not the cream of the crop here. But sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said, come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Now, I'm going to paraphrase verses 7 to 28. It basically goes like this. Jephthah says to them, are you kidding me? Like, you chased me out, like, because of who my mother is. And now you want me to come back and fight for you? And they make a deal. Yeah, we know, we're sorry, but if you'll come back and you'll fight for us because you're a mighty warrior and you always have victory and, and you do great things on the battlefield, we'll make you our commander. And lo and behold, Jephthah agrees to this, so he comes back to be their commander, and Jephthah enters into first diplomacy with the Ammonites, and that doesn't go well, and eventually it escalates to all-out battles and war. So he's about to go to war. Here's what it picks up, verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, and he crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. That's what he says here. So speaking to God. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. You hear me saying? You give me victory. When I come home in triumph, the very first thing that comes out of my door to greet me, I will sacrifice to you as a burnt offering. So, verse 32. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Manith, as far as abel Kiramim, and thus Israel subdued Amnon. Now when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him? But his daughter dancing to the sounds of timbrels. Which when I read this, I thought this was ironic because this is how my daughter greets me when I come from work out. She said, oh, daddy's home. She had the timbrel out and she's singing my praise. No, no, no. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried. Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I'm devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she could, would never marry. And after the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. 
and it's actually from the story comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Giladite. Now, isn't this terrible? I mean, this is a terrible story. And I, God was okay with this. Like, he didn't say, all right, you got a little hasty with your words. I'm going to let you off the hook. After all, it is your only child. No, like, Jephthah didn't say, well, clearly I meant the first animal for sacrifice that comes out of my house. And which makes me wonder, like, how many animals did he have in his house when he made this vow to begin with? Like, was it more like, hey, the chickens are out. Woo, let's take Like, I have no idea. Why did he assume they would be the first ones out to greet him? Or even more importantly, the question for us is, is, what kind of an idiot even makes such a vow? But a vow is a vow. In a day and age where we live, by having our fingers crossed, especially in the area of politics, at least in the ancient Near East, in this time, when you made a vow, you made a vow, especially to God. There is no fingers crossed, I didn't really mean it, etc., and so, like, even in my own home, I noticed my son, Isaac, he was playing guitar this morning. Um, he's a slow talker, meaning when we have a conversation, it's almost like I could see his brain working through what words to say and how to say them. It's slow, it's intentional, it's measured. It drives me crazy. Like, it's painful for me to... I asked for permission to say this. Like, it's like, you want to finish his sentences for him? Now, I, on the other hand, his father, am a fast talker. Like, I could be an auctioneer and successful. I'm just convinced of it. And if you watch me talk, it will look more like my brain is trying to keep up with where my mouth took me. And sometimes I surprise myself by what comes out of my mouth. In fact, um, when I was in graduate school, I preached at a little country church in Truby, Texas. Truby, Texas was actually a ghost town, and other people came to Truby for church. It was a little country church. And uh, so you have to picture, I'm in West Texas, and so what that means is very slow, drawn-out, southern, Tex West Texan, draw. You got that in your mind? Like that's, and so I show up to preach, <laughs> and uh, they gave me a nickname. They called me Rapid Fire because of how fast I could talk. <laughs> And the first time in the church, one of the families invited Kelly and I to go to their house for lunch. Somebody next to him said, well, I hope he doesn't eat as fast as he talks. <laughs> so I was told, like, you're getting like three sermons for the price of one. That's what you're getting. It's a deal here. So, you know, the curse of being a fast talker is sometimes you say something that if you would have waited just a few more seconds, you probably would not have said or at least said it like that. And it seems to me that we live in a day and age where words become cheap because they're everywhere print, social media, spouted off, a lot of words, a lot of talking, and sometimes that even crosses over into our spiritual life. Like when I think about just how much talking, I'm talking about me personally, like, I'm just, right, like how much talking we do. We talk, talk, talk. We talk to one another. I get up and talk. You go to your groups. What do you do? You talk. We talk about faith. We talk about the Bible. And when we pray, what do we do? We bow our heads and we talk. A lot of words. Well, the teacher in Ecclesiastes notices that people, especially when it comes to God, talks a lot. And I, I, mean, some, I mean, even for us, like, the, you know, I swear to God, man, and how many times do you hear people make such statements? Like, it seems to be often, like, they might lift up something like, God, if you'll let the Cubs win this game, I swear I'll never then fill in the blank again. Or God, if you could get me out of this jam, I swear I will fill in the blank. Or God, if you could do me a favor and not let my parents find out I did such and such, I'll go to church, like, on Easter, like, like it's the, the bargaining. And so here's what the teacher in Ecclesiastes says, chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools 
who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. So, let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words spark, uh, mark the speech of a fool. Now, I think a case can be made that the teacher is telling us, listen, when it comes to God, like you should just be a little bit circumspect. Maybe you should just listen more. And I find this somewhat ironic because the teacher has said a lot about Hebel and even life and the way that God designed everything and created everything. And even I'm tempted to want to take this passage and wax eloquently about the spiritual disciplines of silence and, and solitude and listening prayer, all things that we could talk about, all things that are right and legitimate. But I don't think the teacher here is giving us a lesson in the spiritual disciplines of silence and listening prayer. I think he's still trapped in this idea of the meaninglessness of life and Hevel, and he's being grumpy cat. I don't think he's being pious here. I think he's still exasperated to some extent. And what he's saying is, watch yourself when you approach God and save your words, they're not going to do you any good because he's far off. He's in heaven. You're on earth. This is more in line with grumpy cat. And then he shifts in verse 4 to talk about vows specifically. And he says this, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it because he has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger. Well, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? And we see this shift from words to vows here, but the general topic is the same. It still deals with your conduct in the presence of God. Vows were one way of expressing service to God along with prayer and sacrifice. Today, we swear to God in some sort of profanity all the time. So what do you promise to God? Stories told in our family of my grandfather uh, who fought in World War II in France and Germany and North Africa. He made a promise to God when he was there that if God would get him home alive, that he would not smoke or cuss or drink. And uh, he came home alive from the war and did not smoke or cuss or drink in a vow, which kind of goes along with what Deuteronomy 23, verse 21 to 23 says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes says this, hey, to avoid this problem, don't make a vow to begin with. This, you'll, you'll find here another one of the Ecclesiastes better than statements. He says it is better not to vow than to Make one and not fulfill it. And in short, making a vow and not fulfilling it and then trying to make an excuse for it, that angers God. Much like parents, you know how your kids say they're going to do something, you tell them that and they'll still do it, and then they don't, and then we call them on it, they make an excuse. You know how you feel? That's how God feels. He says, you shouldn't, don't do that to God. And all this prepares us for the last verse of the section, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 7 that says, much dreaming and many words are what? Hevel. Therefore, fear God. I mean, he even throws in dreams here. Dreams are hevel. Like, remember the last message series I used Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream Speech as like an illustration, like positively. Now that we're in Ecclesiastes, you're going to have to picture the teacher standing right next to Martin Luther King Jr. as he gives his speech. And, and as he does, it, like, I have a dream. He pipes in hevel. <laughs> like, that one day young boys and young girls will one day, like, hevel. That's what he'd be doing over and over again. When you approach God, you're taking a risk. 
Now, if you're not in the place of feeling crushed in life, that might sound profane and heretical, but if you are in the midst of feeling crushed in life, this will be your language. Yep, I know this is right. And so what happens next is a series of what he would consider to be sickening tragedies that he notices in life. And so the thoughts are still depressing. He goes on in verse 8 to say, If you see the poor oppressed in a district, and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Basically what he's saying is, corruption abounds. The poor are helpless. Even the king takes advantage. The blessing of wealth is really nothing more than a ball of anxiety and stress. And so he'll say this in verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is hevel. I mean this. And so you might notice like just in terms of life, just life, like have you ever noticed your standard of living always goes up to what you're making in terms of income, and so it always feels like you're in the same condition, even though you could be making a whole lot more money now than you did just years ago. What happens? Just your standard of living goes up, and so you never feel satisfied. You never feel like, okay, like I need more. Verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. And he's saying, for somebody who's kind of like, nah, not very wealthy, kind of maybe blue collar, like, their, their sleep for them, that's sweet, whether they eat little or much. But for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. And you see the same sentiment in the New Testament as well. Teachings on being content with what you have, that the love of money is the root of all evil. Jesus will tell a parable to the rich young ruler about uh, what, how, what it takes to be saved and, and recognize, oh yeah, the rich have a hard time getting into heaven. And Paul will say this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 to 10, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. And those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So for Ecclesiastes, it is the smoke and vapor of wealth. As soon as you grasp it, something happens in life and it's gone. It's hevel. He goes on to say, and here's another sickening tragedy. By the way, in this passage, when you see the word evil, I don't think he means like moral evil. I think he means like this is a sickening tragedy. Verse 13, I have seen a grievous evil, think sickening tragedy here, under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners for wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit, which is ironic because if you go to the beginning of Ecclesiastes, he says leaving your kids a bunch of money is also hevel and meaningless. And you think that's unfair, he makes his point in verse 15, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. Unfair. Like, you brought nothing into this world, and this is how you will go out. Death leaves you with nothing, and all your toil is for naught. But verse 16, this too is a sickening tragedy, a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. <laughs> it's, like, like, it's not even like you get to enjoy life a lot before death. <laughs> Verse 17, there's great frustration, affliction, anger. And in light of this sickening tragedy, here's what it'll say. 
do what is good and appropriate. Well, what's that? Things like this. Go to the beach. Grill a ribeye steak. Open the bottle of wine. Go to the concert you've wanted to see. Go on a scenic hike. Catch a movie that you're interested in. Have coffee with a friend. Enjoy what you can, and I paraphrase the teacher in Ecclesiastes because everything else sucks. So he says in verse 18, this is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat and to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. And then when you flip the page over to go to chapter 6, it's kind of more the same. It's more categories of life tragedies and sickening tragedies, like verse 1, I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth and possessions and honor, so they lack nothing their hearts desires, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and ends up strangers enjoy them instead. This is Hevel, a grievous, sickening tragedy. And you might know these stories, don't you? That you work your entire life and save to retire, and then as soon as you retire, what happens? Something hits, a tragedy. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this story play out. I mean, even in our own church, I remember uh, Joe and Alice Hughes that came here. Remember, Joe saved up for, they saved for years to go to Hawaii. That was their dream. He retired, he immediately got sick and died. And the writer of Ecclesiastes sees that and just goes, yeah, this life, hevel. He'll go on and say, verse 3, a man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Like, this is Zoloft. Like, this guy needs Zoloft, depressing. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if that man lives a thousand years twice, <laughs> like, like 2,000, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. And then, listen, you have to ask yourself, like, how did this... Ecclesiastes flies in the face of, like, really everything else even in the Old Testament. Even the Old Testament, long life is considered a blessing. You live 2,000 years, you are blessed. You have a hundred children, like the whole idea of patriarchal blessing being handed down to your children. And the teacher looks at all that and he says, Hevel. He'll go on to verse 7. Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over the fools? But what do the poor gain but by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. More Proverbs here in, in verse 9, you see another better than statement, like it's all meaningless, but it's still better to be able to see than to, and most of your NIV, tra NIV translations say, the roving of the appetite. Another way to say this in the Hebrew is, or the passing of life. I think he's actually referring to death. Better be alive than dead. Then he says in verse 10, whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger, and I think he's meaning God there. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? 
for one who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow. Who could tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Well, you see, there's a repeated theme in Ecclesiastes. What is has always been. There's nothing new under the sun. The more words, the more watered down they become. Who knows what's good, which is ironic because he has tried to summarize with what is good and appropriate. But he says, our days are few and heavy, and who in the world knows what even comes next? In the end of verse chapter 6, what you get is, life is, life is absurd, you die anyway, God is to blame. Depressing, isn't it? I think the teacher would want me to leave this here and let us just kind of wallow in this. But you have to ask yourself, why does Ecclesiastes even get into the Bible? And there's a whole process in which the, uh, our Israelite Hebrew uh, forefathers kind of put together the Old Testament canon. And why didn't any of them read this book and think to themselves, this dude needs depression medication and therapy, or it's so depressing it goes against all that we know about the goodness of God and His good creation that we can see in Genesis. Even more, did you know every year at the festival of Sukkoth or of the tabernacle or of booths, which has commemorated uh, the, the idea of Israel tabernacling in the wilderness and God taking care of them. It's a, it's a celebration of the harvest. But every year at the Festival of Booths, and you know what's happening in our neighborhood, like our Jewish uh, neighbors and friends, if you look in their backyard, they build what kind of looks like a fort. And anyone, anyone see that in the back? Those are the booths that they build, and that's where they go and they have their festival and sometimes even stay in during the, it's a seven-day uh, uh, festival. This year, it'll be sundown on September 23rd is when it starts. But every year during the festival, the Jewish community gathers together and they read Ecclesiastes. Like, why would you do that? Like, what a killjoy to a week-long celebration of the harvest and God's provision during the wilderness. Why, why does it get in? In Ecclesiastes, as depressing as it sounds, as grumpy cat-ish as it gets, provides for us perspective. In order to live life well, an honest perspective of life shapes priorities. And I know it is in the negative. That is just how the teacher taught. But it's provide perspective. And I don't have a lot of good things to say about cancer. In fact, I hate it. If it were my power, there would never be cancer again. Just be gone, just, just like that. So just bear with me for a moment as I attempt to say really the only one good thing I can think of about cancer, and I really only have one, and it would be this. Cancer gives perspective. Cancer prioritizes immediately. Cancer reveals hevel for what it is, hevel, absurdity. Cancer brings into perspective that grudge you've been holding on to for the past 12 years against your sibling because of something they said at a family reunion that hurt your feelings. In light of the diagnosis, you get to see it as hevel. Cancer prioritizes your time. You no longer give it to stupid and silly things. And why? Because it's become a precious commodity. At least in light of cancer, you have perspective to the value of time. And I don't mean to go all Tim McGraw, live like you were dying cheesy on you, but in light of Hevel, you should go skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing and ride 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. And I love deeper and I spoke sweeter, right? Gave forgiveness to those you've been denying. Someone once told me to always make major life decisions in a cemetery. I don't know why that just stuck with me, and so that is what I do. Like, when I have a major life decision to make, I will typically 
go to a cemetery to work that out. And the reason why is because the reality of death should shape how it is that you live. Like death, like cancer, will reveal hevel. It will remind you and us of priorities and what is really important. And that is what Ecclesiastes is supposed to do. Help us in light of death to see life in perspective, to give you priority, to reveal hevel, to let you know that the thing you're so worked up about right now the thing that you're losing sleep over, the thing that you think is the worst thing that has ever happened to you, as you post that on Facebook, is really kind of silly and hevel. When I look back on my life and think of all the things that I got so upset about and so worked up over, now I could have been hevel. Like, really, just they didn't really matter. I mean, you know how many real-life crises I've really had? Like, throughout my life, I thought I was having a ton, like, all the time. But looking back, do you know how many I've actually had? Very few. Hevel. And I know the tone is depressing, but let it shape how we live so that we can see what is good and appropriate, even in light of Hevel, if it is just to eat and to drink and to enjoy the portion God has given us. Amen?